For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. Today we're going to start with a couple of special episodes which are going to be about a focus on a particular group of physicists in history. Now, these episodes have got quite a nice title for them. They're called We Can Always Shoot Them Later, Science, the Soviets and the Bomb. Listeners might not know that before I started this show, I wrote and produced many episodes of a different show, one about autocrats and dictators throughout history. I still have those episodes somewhere, and perhaps someday, when Physical Attraction is finished, or just for fun, I'll release them. Well, you can let me know what you think if you like. Um, But two podcasts at once was far too much even for me, so for now they stay on the shelf. But there is an amazing physics story that came up when I was looking at the life of Stalin, and it concerns the scientists who were essentially, in some ways, press-ganged into making the atomic bomb. It's fair to say that while Hitler and the Allies were both working on the atomic bomb, Stalin's side of the project was lagging behind. That was, until the US dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Quickly, the dynamic changed, from a common struggle between the US and the USSR against a now-defeated Hitler and Imperial Japan, and it moved into the Cold War between the West and the USSR. But of course, the issue with this Cold War at first was that it was ridiculously unbalanced while one side had nuclear weapons. So because it's fascinating and tangentially related to physics, or at least physicists, I adapted part of that historical script for these episodes. It really just scratches the surface of the history and the science of this fascinating and pivotal time in the human endeavour. But anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Imagine being born in the late 1890s. Having endured two world wars and a Great Depression, you might just be looking forward to retirement when the atomic bomb was dropped in 1945. This, of course, was precisely what happened to Stalin. Stalin likely knew that the US had finished the atomic bomb before he was told, and certainly before it was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but it didn't change the fact that for all the might of the Red Army, it meant that the balance of power had shifted back towards the capitalist nations. His reaction, when Truman informed him at the Potsdam Conference, the follow-up to Yalta, had belied his own annoyance that his scientists hadn't got there in time. Stalin said, a new bomb of extraordinary power, probably decisive on the Japanese, what luck? Stalin knew that the threat of nuclear war would prove a powerful bargaining chip. Of course, it was this that hung over the Cold War, and therefore most of geopolitics for the next 50 years. But it has to be remembered that during the Cold War, doctrines such as mutually assured destruction limited the impact that the threat of nuclear war could have diplomatically. Given that it would be an apocalyptic scenario for both parties, There was no credible threat of nuclear war. It was a less credible threat at any rate. The main issue, as we discussed in our episodes on Teotihuacan nuclear weapons, was from accidents. 
Spheres of influence instead would become the means by which nuclear states could defend the interests of some of the non-nuclear states. And in some ways, this means that actually having nuclear weapons and a nuclear balance of power kind of encourages conflicts, proxy wars to break out in other areas of the world. But you have to remember that this equality, our idea of the Cold War, was not the case in the few years after the Second World War, when the US had nuclear weapons and the Soviets did not. In fact, there were a lot of people in US high command who were saying, look, this is going to be our only opportunity. If we don't strike now, in a few years, the USSR will develop their own nuclear warheads, and then they will be able to attack us with the same nuclear force. So there was a very real concern in the upper echelons of the US, and there was a very real concern in the upper echelons of the USSR about this unbalanced state of things. And if some people had had their way, they would have made a few more bombs and dropped them on Moscow, St. Petersburg, and just said, you know, this first half of the 20th century has been a pretty bloody affair, but capitalism and Western liberal democracy is supreme now that all the threats to it have been destroyed. Of course, that's not what happened. Stalin was not willing to be held over a barrel, and the Soviet efforts to develop their own bomb, well, it would have proved a useful tool in the Second World War, but now it was absolutely crucial that they had this bomb, so they redoubled the efforts. The Soviet bomb project had started in 1943, but slowly, amidst rumours that the US were developing a bomb that might have been disinformation, it accelerated. It was an interesting side project for the Soviets at first, but it was now, in Stalin's view, completely necessary for them to maintain any hope of keeping power. As a physicist who knows a lot of physicists, the story of the bomb's development is a fascinating one for me. The stereotypes for physicists are socially awkward and mildly obsessive. They're not universally true, not all physicists are like this, but they do seem to be true a statistically significant amount of the time. Or maybe that's just how people get filtered down to us in the cultural perceptions that we build around these famous physicists later on. On the other hand, I would say it's probably true of academics and all kinds of subjects that they are socially awkward and mildly obsessive, because these traits in some ways might be helpful. But at any rate, I've never fought in a war, and I cannot even begin to truly empathise with the soldiers who did so, because it's so far from my realm of experience. To say that I can do that is insulting to their memory. But perhaps I can begin to imagine a physicist obliged to sit at a desk, and calculate the most effective ways to kill millions of people. And this is what they did during the Second World War. There were physicists who were forced to sit in offices and work out the best way of conducting firebombing raids that produced these terrible firestorms like those caused in Dresden, Hamburg and Tokyo by the Allies. In actual fact, these firestorms were worse than the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of casualties, in terms of deaths. And there's just enough shared experience that it touches me all the more to imagine what that might be like to make those calculations on some paper with some slide rules, but knowing that the intellectual problem you were solving would lead to unimaginable destruction. That the reason you were trying to optimise the solution was to kill as many civilians as possible. The Soviet physicists who developed the atomic bomb had to contend with their own moral scruples. So initially, the Foreign Secretary Molotov, who was in charge of the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact between uh, the Stalin and Hitler, Molotov was initially supervising the bomb's development, but he was frustrated. Stalin was frustrated with the slow progress that Molotov was making. And so he put Beria in charge the day after Hiroshima, 
saying, Hiroshima has shaken the whole world. The balance has been destroyed. This cannot be. A little background, then, on what this change meant. A little background on Beria. He was no scientist, but rather one of the more repugnant characters you come across in history, Lavrenti Beria. No historian has anything nice to say about Beria, and with good reason. In actual fact, even a lot of people who are Stalin sympathisers, they hate Beria too, and they blame Beria for many of the excesses of the Stalinist regime. He was one of Stalin's more brutal and murderous lieutenants, so intimately associated with the secret police and the NKVD, which he would eventually lead, that for a long time the excesses of Stalin's purges and repression were actually laid at Beria's feet. The NKVD is something like what would become the KGB, although the NKVD were a much bigger organisation and they were much more focused on internal repression of the civilians rather than uh, external uh, espionage. People were actually willing to believe, so horrendous was Beria's reputation, that he was solely responsible for the mass executions that would comprise Stalin's Great Terror. And you can see why no one likes him. I mean, he was a sycophant. When he first visited Stalin's Dhaka and first caught the eye of the Bolshevik tyrant, it's said that Stalin was complaining about the shoddy state of the garden. Beria, the perfect lickspittle, immediately grabbed an axe and cut down an offending tree, saying, I'm just demonstrating to the master of the garden, Joseph Vissarionovich, that's Stalin, that I can cut down any tree that offends him. It's almost as if in that moment he was offering to become Stalin's enforcer, against any imagined enemies. He was this consummate flatterer and toadier, and beneath this loyalist exterior he concealed a horrific personality. There is now a great deal of historical evidence that he abused his power as the head of the NKVD to carry out a campaign of sexual assault against women. He would drive around the streets with fellow NKVD officers at night, selecting individuals to target. Everyone knew him, everyone knew of his power, and they were afraid of him. From Simon Montfiore's excellent book, The Court of the Red Tsar, quote, After dining, Beria would take the women into his soundproofed office and rape them. Beria's bodyguards reported that their orders included handing each victim a flower bouquet as she left Beria's house. The implication being that to accept made it consensual. I gave you flowers, but refusal would mean arrest. In one incident, his chief bodyguard, Sarkisov, reported that a woman who had been brought to Beria rejected his advances and ran out of his office. Sarkozov mistakenly handed her the flowers anyway, prompting the enraged Beria to declare, Now it's not a bouquet, it's a wreath. May it rot on your grave. The woman was arrested by the NKVD the next day. Some women, in desperation, were persuaded to accept his advances in the hope of freeing husbands or siblings who were detained by the NKVD. In one case... Beria promised to free the father and grandfather of a young actress before raping her. The relatives in question had, in reality, been executed months earlier. This was a time in the Soviet Union, you have to understand, that there were regular prescription lists being drawn up. These lists were people who were to be taken in by the NKVD secret police. They would be beaten up. In many cases, they would be tortured. In many cases, they would be executed. I remember reading a, a horrendous first-hand account of the Great Terror in 1937, the NKVD. A girl, a young girl goes to school, and the very same day, both of her parents are arrested. She goes back home, there's no one to look after her. Her younger brother, 
they have to take the savings from the family piggy bank and live off that. Eventually, she moves in with some relatives that they manage to get in contact with. After the fall of Stalin in 1953, she talked to the authorities in something called de-Stalinization when they started to de-Stalinize, I suppose, and uh, roll back some of his repressive regimes. And because she believed that her parents were still in prison, perhaps, she didn't know what had happened to them. They said that both of them had died of a heart attack on the exact same day. Of course, this wasn't true, and it was only after the fall of the Soviet Union, 60 years later, that they told her that, yes, they had both been executed a few days after their arrest, and there was never any evidence presented that they'd been involved in any crimes, because, of course, they hadn't. It was just completely arbitrary, and many people in the NKVD knew how easy it was to just slip another name onto the list to avenge some petty grudge, or, in Beria's case, to blackmail people into his sick world of sexual depravity. Beria's many crimes are still under investigation, with the handwritten list that he kept of his victims due for public release in 2028. There is strong anecdotal evidence that Stalin and other Politburo members knew about Beria's actions, with Stalin even telephoning his daughter when she was left alone with Beria and telling her to leave immediately, and other Politburo members advising their daughters never to accept a lift from him. And of course, this is just his extracurricular activities. Everyone knew that Beria was a horrific torturer, and Beria himself took great pleasure in the rumours of his own brutality. He encouraged them. In the prison camps, he had sloping floors built into the prison walls. Why was that? So that it would be easier to hose them down for blood after a torturing or an execution. He was a horrendous person. But this is the nature of the type of individual who can rise to great prominence and influence when loyalty and brutality are the main qualities that the leader searches for. As Stalin's regime became more and more bloodthirsty, Beria would rise to greater and greater prominence. So you can see, of course, why the physicists might have been a little concerned that the man in charge of their bomb project was this man, Lavrenti Beria. Stalin's attitude towards science was paradoxical at times. He understood the necessity of technical innovation to keep up with the West, and was a strong supporter of scientific innovations despite rarely understanding them himself. After all, one of the key ideas behind communism is that eventually the system works because you can produce abundance for everybody. With the incentive to compete over limited resources gone, capitalism never starts to re-emerge. And one of the ways that you're supposed to do that is through increased technology. There was a strain of techno-utopianism, that the machines would do all the labour of humans and provide benefit for everyone, rather than profits for a few. This reminds me, a few episodes back we had the uh, cartoonist and author Zach Wienersmith on the show for an interview, and one of the things that we discussed in that interview was the idea that technology would lead us into this utopian world where everyone had plenty. And what Zach pointed out that I'd never thought about is that actually in many ways we are a wealthy enough society that everyone could live in wealthy standard of living for the 1920s. But it's just that nowadays our standards are so much higher than they were back then. Nowadays we have instantaneous communication, we have all these portable consumer gadgets that they didn't have back then. 
it has become very normal for people to be able to eat imported food from all over the world. And so his argument is that, in actual fact, we are living the sort of kingly standard of life from the 1920s that we could do, but it's just that there's still a competition over resources because people still don't feel that there's sufficient abundance. And when you get into this, you get into some quite deep philosophical musings on the nature of humanity, right? When When is there abundance? Do we really have to wait for a technology like a nanofabricator such that you can produce anything from raw materials and anyone can have any quantity anytime they want? I mean, is that is that the definition of abundance? It's an interesting question. But since the communist idea was all about competing with the West, about being technologically better than the West, and there were lots of strains of modernism and techno-utopianism in it, there were all of these different forces that pulled Russians to invest in science, to invest in physics, to invest in useful technologies. But of course, Stalin's approach to this technical revolution was a very, very forced one. Peasants were swept up into collective farms in a process called collectivization. The theory behind this makes some sense, but it's one of those things that makes sense on paper until you try and deploy it in the real world. The theory behind collectivization is pretty simple. If you have an individual peasant working their own plot of land, producing food for their family and selling the excess to buy everything they need, well, this model has a lot of problems for efficiency for the whole society. It might be good for the peasant, but it's not good for the society. They can't buy tractors by themselves, so mechanization is slow to take hold. At least in theory, if you get everyone working together on collective farms, things can be more efficient, uh, things can be more productive, you can grow a better range of crops, you can club together to buy tractors and so on, and there'll be better times for everyone. But in reality, collectivization was implemented in a brutal and frankly pretty stupid way. The peasants never bought into the idea, it was never even explained to them in many cases, but they were instead forced onto collective farms at gunpoint, often by fanatical volunteers from the cities. If someone comes to you and says, by the way, the farm, the land on which you've worked your whole life no longer belongs to you, it belongs to the government, you have to uproot and move to this new farm and share everything you have with everyone else, this is an idea that really requires you to buy into it. I mean, imagine if you're a small business owner and something similar happens to you today. They say, OK, we're going to forcibly consolidate you into one bigger business because it will be easier for you guys to compete. You know, most people won't stand for that. And so collectivization was driven by this utopian desire to use technology to improve productivity. But the result was mass famine, horrible repression, and the agricultural sector declined for a long time before it got any better. Another example of this forced approach to technical specialization was the city of Magnitogorsk. It was built essentially by slave labor in the middle of the Ural Mountains, which is this part in the, the far east of Russia, which is uh, very cold and sparsely inhabited. And there was a sleepy mining town there, and they tried to industrialize it by converting it into this vast industrial edifice over the course of just a few years, because this is how the USSR and Stalinism worked. Everything had to be better. Everything had to be perfect. All of the quotas that they set had to be over-fulfilled. So why build a city in a decade when you can struggle and strive and build it in a few years and trumpet it as a great achievement? But of course the result is that quite often there are huge inefficiencies and huge suffering along the way. Sometimes things just take a long time.
Stalin, the Man of Steel, though, he loved this symbolism. I mean, here we have his name means the Man of Steel, and he's built a city of steel on top of this mountain that was rich in iron ore, so it's really perfect for him. But the cost belied the dreams of an industrial utopia. 250,000 labourers worked on Magnitogorsk. 10,000 of them died. Special carts went around the barracks and asked, Do you have any of the dead today? And every day they took bodies. This is what Akhamid Yetzanov, who worked there, says of the winter of 1931, working on Magnitogorsk. He said children died first of all, and the elderly... So Stalin promoted science because it was part of these communist ideals. But at the same time, his politics was constantly in the picture. And there was a fundamental contradiction here. Scientists had been caught up in the Great Terror, along with the rest of the educational establishment. After all, you're more likely to get your radical three thinkers there. They believe in an objective truth, independent of the party. And Stalin and any repressive regime is obviously very suspect and hostile in some ways towards universities. And then even class issues came into play, as Stalin considered proletarian science to be superior to bourgeois science. Science, of course, is, is, is it's just science. It doesn't matter the class of the person who's made it, certainly shouldn't matter. After all, what makes a good scientific theory? First and foremost, it has to explain the facts, and preferably make you predictions about what will happen in the future. Scientists also like mathematical evidence, and things that are philosophically reassuring. But take a theory like quantum mechanics. Here we discover that we can't have a totally deterministic view of the universe. You can't say precisely what position and momentum the subatomic particle has for all time. You can't treat it like a little billiard ball whizzing around through space. Instead, the best you can do is come up with a probability distribution. Your statement has gone from, I can measure this particle and tell you exactly where it is and how fast it's going, to, well, there's some set of probabilities that the particle might be here or over there, or moving this quickly, or moving this slowly, and I can tell you where it will be on average, but I can't tell you where it is now. It feels philosophically like a much weaker statement, and it challenges our philosophical assumptions that the universe is nice, neat, orderly, that it behaves in the ways that we might expect it to. Einstein hated this aspect of it, the probabilistic aspect, famously saying that God does not play dice with the universe. But quantum mechanics is accepted by physicists because it matches reality better than anything else. So you can't even, if you're being intellectually honest, judge a scientific theory about whether you like it or not, whether it's elegant or not. And you certainly can't judge it on the background of the person who created it. That's a terrible metric. There's an excellent book on this subject, Stalin and the Scientists by Simon Ings. By the time Stalin died on 5th of March 1953, he writes, the Soviet Union boasted the largest and best-funded scientific establishment in history. It was at once the glory and the laughingstock of the intellectual world. And he talks about this fundamental contradiction too. He talks about how the Bolsheviks, the original revolutionaries, viewed the ideology of Marxism as essentially scientific in its analysis of human progress. And science was always a vital part of their conception of the Soviet Union, which they trumpeted as the first state ever founded on scientific principles. 
And when they first came into power, there was a huge drive towards getting more people literate, getting more people to understand science, this kind of thing. It was a modernising drive as well. It was saying, we're not going to be like the backwards old Russians of the past, but instead we're going to embrace the modern world, and science was a huge part of that. But in many ways, Stalin and the USSR's attitude towards science is a perfect example of the nature of the whole communist project. In the gap between the ideals, the propaganda, and the reality of things, in that gap there is terror. There is oppression, there is suffering, and a terrible, brutal waste. In some cases, Stalin's political influence was more direct. He championed the work of biologists who rejected natural selection and the theory of evolution. And you kind of have to look on this as being as part of his personal philosophy as well. After all, the idea that the best traits are propagated by competition and the survival of the fittest... It's not necessarily very communist. Free market capitalism is pretty Darwinian. And so if you're going to accept Darwin's theory of evolution as explaining uh, the success of life on Earth and the diversity of life on Earth, then you're sort of implicitly saying there's a kind of capitalist system here. Because in the way that capitalism is the arrangement of things to maximise private profit, you have... Darwinian evolution as a similar optimization process that optimizes species so that they're best capable of passing on their genes, right? Whether that's by saying the species can survive longer or they're better at attracting mates, either way, it's all about optimizing their ability to reproduce. But Stalin didn't like this. These interventions led to a persecution of geneticists in the USSR that did serious damage, and the promotion of this guy Lysenko, whose theories were essentially discredited uh, quite severely by the West and by others later on. In the case of physics, there's less scope for politically incorrect baryons and mesons, but politics was never absent. Stalin didn't want the scientists to be corrupted by outside influence. He championed theories developed by Russians, and good communists especially, sometimes without much consideration for scientific merit. And here there's an uneasy tension, because ideally, science is collaborative, it's universal. But there was this uneasy tension between copying the more advanced Western nuclear program and pioneering Soviet science, which they never really resolved. Stalin's political considerations would often come ahead of the reality of science. Scientists were useful tools for him, but he had little time for their explanations of why access to and building on Western research was crucial. Yet with the bomb, he did defer to their expertise often. Leave the physicists in peace, he'd say to Beria. They're just doing their jobs. We can always shoot them later. The appointment of Beria, who was a good and fanatically energetic organiser, but is of course most famous for his brutality, would send shivers down your spine as a physicist. It sent a very simple signal to them. Get this work done, or die. And he would stroll around, the world's worst line manager. You're a good worker, he'd say, but a spell in the gulag would make you work even harder. They were essentially his prisoners. The scientists and technicians, tens of thousands of them working on the project, were essentially his prisoners. Beria himself knew that if the project failed, Beria himself was just as much at risk of execution as anyone else. Stalin was willing to provide them with all of the economic resources they could need, 
but time was not something he was willing to compromise on. There was this famous speech where he lamented being beaten for backwardness. Everything had to be done faster, better. The Soviet attempt to build the atomic bomb then would be run just as all Soviet projects were. A dramatic, revolutionary struggle to hastily achieve the goal by any means necessary, with the threat of terror lurking in the background. Sometimes capable of incredible achievements, sometimes leading to horrible inefficiencies. It was a nuclear physics five-year plan, like the five-year plans they had for the economy. But Stalin wasn't willing to give them five years. Many of the scientists who worked were prisons in the Sharaska, which were the technical expert gulags, prison camps, where the inmates were obliged to perform intellectual work. A lot of them had their work published anonymously, or credited to more politically correct scientists. They were locked up behind barbed wire in these secret cities. There were some brilliant physicists in the Soviet Union. Sakharov, Kapitsa, Kurkachev and Landau all worked on the bomb, and many of them did the work out of curiosity, a sense of duty, or even for the philosophical reason that a nuclear balance might prevent future war. In a strange way, they're almost like a mirror image of the US scientists who worked on the atomic bomb project. Men like Oppenheimer, Beth, and even Einstein who worked on the bomb, they weren't necessarily radical patriots. They had no love of war or America. They had this intense mix of feelings about what they were doing. On one level, it was an incredible scientific challenge, and a highly important one. The physicists in the USSR and the US knew that the rewards of success would be great, that their reputations would be made throughout history, and that no expense would be spared to help them. And they were collaborating with some of the finest minds in the country, working towards a common goal every day. When Oppenheimer in the West succeeded in developing the first nuclear bomb, there were mixed emotions for him too. Physicist Isidore Rabi noticed Oppenheimer's reaction after the bomb was a success. He said, quote, I'll never forget his walk. I'll never forget the way he stepped out of the car. His walk was like high noon, this kind of strut. He had done it. At the same time, he famously remembered the line from Hindu scripture, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. And there was an account of a meeting between Oppenheimer and US President Harry Truman, the man who had ordered the bombs to be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oppenheimer said that he was upset. He felt that he had blood on his hands. Truman, who perhaps felt the real guilt and responsibility for ordering the bombings that killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, later said, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. There was this mix of fear and the excitement of the technical breakthroughs they were making. As an abstract physics and engineering problem, it presents a wonderful intellectual challenge. And perhaps many of the scientists could justify their views by considering to themselves that they had no choice but to develop the bomb. In the US, they were concerned that the Nazis and the Soviets would get one first. In the USSR, after 1945, they were concerned that the US would use its atomic supremacy to dominate the world, which we know from declassified conversations and archives is not entirely far from what some in the US hierarchy were thinking. Yet, the physicists I know would have chafed under the rule of someone who knew nothing about physics, demanding unreasonable progress and making thinly veiled threats. Next episode, I will get into some of the specific scientists and their stories in the process of developing the Soviet bomb. We'll talk a little bit more about how nuclear weapons actually work, don't worry, nothing classified, and what it was like to work on this particular project. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. We can always shoot them later.
the science, the Soviets, and the bomb. If you're interested in the show, you can go to www.physicspodcast.com. That is your network. That is your nexus for all things physical attraction. There you can find our entire archive of episodes that we've produced so far. You can contact us via the contact form. You can read my articles that I write for other newspapers and things like that. You can donate to the show if you think we're doing a good job via PayPal. You can buy archive episodes also via PayPal or via our Patreon. The link is there. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, as I say, there's the contact form. Follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod, and you can talk to us there. And if you comment under each individual episode, I always read those as well. So anything you want to say about the show, praise, criticism, you know, it's all good. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>